There's a, an, an air of vulnerability that comes off you. Why is that? Say more about that. Say more about it. Is that one of your fucking psychotherapist questions? <laughs> So we are here in Stony Batter this week in Dublin 7. Myself and Killian are parked around the corner from the home of this week's guest where we are going to record our second last conversation of the series. We only have one more show to go. Killian, how are you doing? I'm great, Richie. Only one more week of concern passes by looking in the car wondering why do these men have microphones? I just don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to episode. So to introduce this week's guest, Terence Power. He's 27 years of age, which makes him the youngest guest so far in the series. He'll be really well known to listeners of the Talking Bollocks podcast. It's a show he co-hosts with his friend Calvin O'Brien. Now, it's hugely successful. It's been going for three years now. It's just won the Listener's Choice Award for Mm. the second year in a row at the Irish Podcast Awards, which is really remarkable when you consider how it all began for them. It was Terence and Calvin recording a conversation between themselves on a phone in Calvin's kitchen. But what I really want to speak to Terence about is not just the podcast and how it all came about, but his personal story too. He's someone who grew up in the flats in Dorset Street here in town, and it was a childhood that featured a lot of trauma, a lot of neglect. He lost his dad suddenly when he was seven years of age, and with it, his safe space, as he once put it, which was his dad's flat. Life in his mum's flat was fairly difficult because she was in active addiction throughout his childhood. In his teens, he got addicted to drink and drugs himself. But he's been in recovery since the summer of 2020, which is an area I really, really want to delve into. And Terence's story doesn't happen in a vacuum either, Rich. And on the one hand, the lads have been you know, brilliant at dispelling um, outside like misguided perceptions about life in the inner city. They've also been very honest about issues that do affect their communities, whether that be poverty or addiction. And Terence has spoken brilliantly about the kind of circumstances that, you know, that you've alluded to there that led to, to his cycle of addiction. But they've also had, you know, amazing chats with his mum, Rachel, for example, who came on and spoke in like really unflinching detail about what exactly was going on in her life that led her to being in, in active addiction for so long. And what was most incredible about it was she was having this conversation with her son and his friend and, you know, it was being recorded. So... That's just kind of one of the clear examples in my head of the sort of brilliant conversations that they've been having on the show. Yeah, and also they somehow managed to do all of that while being really, really funny Mm. along with it. Before we head into meet Terence, though, I just want to remind you that episode is brought to you by now. It's always a pretty good time to sign up for an air membership. I think you'll agree, Killian. I will. And I think you'll also agree that signing up is as easy as can be. But December is a particularly good time, especially mm-hmm. if you're a football fan like myself, because there are so many matches on the way. This weekend, for example, Man City play Tottenham with only three points between them. Man U play Chelsea this day next week and Liverpool versus United is coming down the tracks very quickly too. Now, a lot all of you will have watched Leinster Munster at the weekend, which was very conveniently available with a Now Sports <laughs> membership. And you'll be able to watch them both in Champions Cup action in the next couple of weeks too. Leinster travel to La Rochelle in their first match and Munster play Exeter Chiefs in the early stages. Two brilliant matches, producer Killian assures me. <laughs> now have two sports memberships available, meaning you'll be able to watch Sky Sports, Premier Sports and TNT Sports. So whether it's for a day or for a month, Now has the membership for you. Right, let's go and speak to this week's guest, Terence Power from the Talking Bollocks podcast. Hello, 
No flower. That's happening. Here we are. Interview. Yeah. Terence, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Richie. Not at all. We're sitting here in your home in Stony Batter. You've been here a while. Yeah, I've been here over two years now, yeah. This is home? Yeah, it is now, yeah. I used to live in my mass, and uh, even when I go up there now, it's a struggle to stay there for too long. My mass, three young kids, and I don't know how I used to do it. It's like I get sensory overload now when I'm up there. What ages are they? 10 and 11, I think, or 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. Around that, anyways, but they're all mad. It's a mad gaff. My mass, mad. Their dad's mad, my stepdad, they're all mad up in the gaff, so when I go up there now, it's, I'm like, oh, 15 minutes is too much. And I used to live in that, I don't know how I coped. When did you move out from your mum? Um, a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago. Um, I was living in a homeless accommodation for a while as well then, for a while. Really? Yeah, before I got what here. What was that like? Rough, rough, yeah. Um, especially being in recovery when you're in a place like that there's obviously a lot of people who are struggling mentally and struggling with addiction and stuff like that so and you know what's going on around you like people are drinking and using in the place so when you're trying to stay away from that and you're living with everyone who's doing it I found it was a real struggle God that sounds a lot to have to handle Mm-hmm. yeah you know because most people who I would have interacted with would have been drinking heavily in there. So, like, when you're chatting to people, even in the hallways and in the rooms, you can smell drink everywhere. The room that I was in was, like, the carpet is very stale smell. And, oh, it's, I just have bad memories of that time. Were mm. you there long? A couple of months. Okay. A couple of months I was there, yeah. Um. So you'd moved out from living with your mum at this point. Mm. I've, like, congrats on the success of the podcast. Um, I, I want to talk to you loads about that. But one of the episodes that really, really jumped out for me was the episode where your mum, Rachel, was on. Mm. Um, I said to you yesterday on the phone when we first spoke, I've never heard a conversation like that outside of a therapy room where people are so open about their own behaviours and the impact of their behaviours on other people. Before I ask you about that, how are things with you and your mum now? Great. Never better. My ma is a superhero. I love her. Like, she's... Obviously, you've listened to the episode, like I said, so growing up was a real struggle. And for many years, we didn't get on. I didn't want to talk to her. I felt like she'd let me down and my brothers. Um, but From what ages would that phase have been where you weren't really talking? Teenage years. Okay. Teenage years. Like, we'd live together. And I wouldn't speak to her. Like, we wouldn't, like, we never spoke growing up. Like, I'd never go in and be like, how was your day? Or she wouldn't ask me. Or it was just, we just lived together. You know, there was a lot of tension, a lot of, it's hard to even explain. When I look back on it, I regret it. Like, I regret the way I was towards her, but I also understand why I would have felt that way towards her at that time. But now, my ma is clean now. We've never grown better, you know. She's she's a superhero. She's a great woman, like. God, that's a great way of describing your own mother, isn't it? Mm. Superhero. She is. Um, the background to her appearing on the podcast. How did that come about? I knew my ma had a mad life. And I knew it would be powerful to have her on to tell it. Where, like, my ma would have <laughs> never even dreamt of doing an interview or a podcast or ever telling a story but as time was going on 
with the podcast and I would be telling my story about being in recovery and Calvin would be telling his story and we'd be going on, the episodes are going on and the more I thought about it, the more I thought if we got me my in and she was able to tell her story and just have a real conversation like that, that was the whole point of it let's just have a real conversation about life and see what happens and see where it goes like what's the worst that can happen you know, so we done it and the response to that, like that's that's a real life story that's getting told there and people can relate to it, you know. Um and I would even say now the reason why me and my mag are on so good now and I always say it is because that changed when my ma had the other kids. So my ma there's me and my two older brothers who are twins. My ma also had three more kids then, so my little sister and another set of twins, believe it or not. Amazing, yeah. Um, so she had them. But when she had the kids, the way me ma the way I see her with them now makes me realize made me realise at the time, like she is actually a good person with a big heart. She's a great person. She just didn't know how to cope when we were kids. She didn't have anything. You know, and in it she talks about her life and her struggles and her trauma. So how would she have been able to look after us? Whereas time has gone on, she's sober, she got off the drinking drugs, she was a chronic alcoholic, she using drugs most days. So seeing that growing up and then seeing the way she is now, so she's sober now and the way she treats the kids. And to be honest, she spoils them a bit too much if you ask me, but I think that's our regret for not spoiling us. You know, she's like, oh, I need to give them everything, you know, but, uh, but I, could, I could feel it off me, ma. So my ma would randomly ring me and just apologise for the life that we had growing up like and sometimes she try and I but me and my ma are very humorous with each other so I'd be like fuck off ma will you have a fuck's sake it's grand like it's no big deal so but we never sat down and got into detail with it so that's an episode like I've never listened back to it and I wouldn't be able to listen back to it really? yeah I wouldn't be able to listen to it yeah so I don't even know how that went <laughs> I just I didn't enjoy it in the moment I don't even enjoy the thought of it. I remember after it, I felt, I felt vulnerable and I felt for her, I was like, am I after, are we at the point myself in a really vulnerable position here for people to judge? And like, it's hard to explain. It's, it's a tough one to explain because I never wanted my mother to get hate on that or I never wanted anybody to be like, Jesus Christ, she was a bad mother or they had a rough life. Or, I never wanted that from me. I just wanted reality to come true because it's so common. This is what I said even before doing this with you, Richie. I feel like when we speak about things like this, it's almost like a poverty pity party. It's almost, it can kind of look like that from the outside, but the truth is it's just reality. And we were no exception either. Most people where I grew up in Doors Estuary Flats, most people lived a similar life to us. Most of us had nothing. There was the select few, a handful of people in the flats who probably had a telly and a skybox. You were a millionaire if you had that. If you had channels on the telly, you were a millionaire, you know? Where most of us wouldn't have had heating in the house. We wouldn't have had a telly with channels on it. Like the gaff would have been mad. The flat would have been mental. Most of us lived that way, so. When what, I, what does mental mean? So for me growing up, my mental would have been waking up in the morning and one of your four sides is Yama having a drink probably bringing you to school with a can on the pram. And then you go home from school yourself 
and you go into the house and my ma would probably be sitting there with three of her friends and they'd all be drinking and music would be blurred and then it's half two in the day and they're all just partying from early and then that goes on into the night and as as the night goes on now I'm talking a Wednesday night a Thursday night it didn't matter what day of the week it was at night you're trying to go asleep and you're lying in bed and the visions I have of of the flat growing up what they're like grim so there was me and my two older brothers there's only two years between us they're twins obviously and we had bunk beds in the room so on the wall so it would have been like no wallpaper no paint there would have been just like dark walls and the floor there would have been no floorboards no tiles no lino it was just like this black ground that was like dusty and dirty and we'd get into the in the night time we'd get into bed we in the bunk beds we'd just three of us sleep on the bottom bunk together to get the heat into us and the duvet would have no duvet cover on it so I hate the feeling of do you ever take the duvet cover off a duvet and it's like that cotton white mm-hmm. we I hate that now I can't touch it so the three of us are lying on the bottom bunk together trying to get the heat into us and the toenails would be getting caught in the cotton and the wall would be damp so whoever was closest to the wall we kill each other to not be closest to the wall because if your back touched the wall it was freezing cold and it'd be wet and in the midst of that happening downstairs there's people roaring and shouting and drinking and music is blurring and you're constantly thinking is a fight gonna break out is my man gonna be alright is the you know there was always a fear so that to me would be what I'd call mental Um, but also like people I think people find this hard to believe but it's actually very common it's just if you haven't lived there well then you're like how could that be possible but like there'll be most days we wouldn't have a dinner like we the only time we'd have a dinner is if because our aunties lived in the, in the same flats as us so sometimes we'd be down in the flats playing our auntie would call us up have a bit of dinner on and we'd go up and we'd have a bit of dinner but on the days that that didn't happen we wouldn't have dinner we've never sat down as a family and had a dinner together we've never you know and that's again that is such a common thing we're not an exception because that was our reality like some of our friends would have lived the exact same thing so that was reality your dad died when you were seven and yeah. the way you describe your mum she was in active addiction it's like you describe a childhood but there was almost a total absence of parental guidance or anything yeah that that would be exactly it because when my dad was alive I remember like my dad and my ma split up and we moved out and we moved up beside the Phoenix Park up the Finlater Street in a cottage so there was me my ma and my brothers and every Friday Saturday Sunday we can now stay with my dad in the flats and the difference in each household is like still so clear in my mind today even though I was so young so we when we knew we were going down to my dad like we were buzzing we were happy we get down and we go in my dad make us dinner and like life was just better down there but obviously he passed away when I was seven suddenly and it was it's really from when he died mm. when life got bad I think my ma got worse with I drinking and using and it just became tough from there on like so we're sitting here now as two adults and we're talking about a podcast episode where you and your mum talked really openly about your life, her childhood, her addiction and your relationship. When did you start to realise, okay, mum's not well, she's struggling. 
Og til at starte, der blev det løs. Der ville det være. Like I said, there would have been a handful of people in the flats who grew up in nice homes. Like their flat would have been nice, would have been done up well. They would have had a, a sweet press, which I thought was mad. Yeah. And I remember one of my first realities is going up to one of my friend's houses, one of my friend's flats on the back block. And we went up and he opened the press and there was like bars and crips and the heat was on. And he was like, just want to watch school sports. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? What is this? And his man came in later on and was like, well, I already is a Mazzoni's. And I was like, this is mad. Because I didn't, I thought my reality was reality for everybody. And that would have been one of my first memories. I've been like, oh, my flat is mad. And my ma must be just not well. Like, there's something not right here. Because there's no chaos in this flat. Yeah. There's no, there's no madness. His ma isn't sitting there drunk and out of her head. And like, roaring and shouting. She's coming in, she's like, are you all right, lads? She's want food and there's want this. And they would have been like my earliest memories of being like, my house isn't right and my ma isn't well. What kind of a kid were you then on the back of all this? When you got to your teens, like, how were you carrying on? Disgraceful. <laughs> I was a mad kid. <laughs> I was a very intelligent kid and growing up, like... I was always getting arrested. I was always causing trouble. It's only, it's only when I look back now, I kind of go, I was craving attention mm-hmm. that I wasn't getting at home. I loved attention. I wanted to be the center of attention. Like I'd do something purposely to be chased by the guard and I'd run through the flat so everyone could see me and think he's a mad cunt. Like I always wanted people to look at me like as if I was this tough kid. And when I knew I wasn't even that, you know, I was acting out in ways that kids normally don't, you know what I mean? Because they're getting attention at home or like even in school, like I was I was never present. I was always in trouble. And growing up even into my teen years then and stuff like that, like like I would have started drinking at probably 14, 15. That would have been just on the weekends, down the flats. A few of the boys get together, you get locked in your fall home. And uh, they were good times. But then drugs come into the equation. And like what I did my first probably sniff of cocaine at about 16. And that for me was, that was, like I remember my first times doing it, like the very first few times I would have tried it. Jesus Christ, I loved it. Oh, I loved it. I thought there was nothing like in the world. I thought there was nothing like me in the world when I was on it. But, so this is why I always say like, I was never fearful of drugs because drugs were around me all the time. So drinking drugs were never, what had I got to be afraid of? Everyone in my house was doing it. You get down to the flats and everyone's selling drugs. And you know, your friends, man, are drinking and doing drugs. And so we're all just in this bubble of madness. And it's only really then when I started meeting people from outside the flats. And I'm talking at about 16 here. And I'd be probably going, to do a sniff or have me a few drinks and they'd be, they would say to me something mad like, oh, don't do, you'll die if you do that, don't do that. And I'm like, you'll die if you do that, you'll die if you do And they were always read of, if you do drugs, you can die, like, where I was like, no, you won't. Sure, everybody does drugs, like, oh, that fair fact that was never there for me. So when I tried it, I never thought I'm going to die from this because everybody around me does it. 
So like they're all still here. And then when I did it, the boys you get off it. And you're thinking, why the fuck doesn't everybody do this? That's your thought process. You don't think of the long road. So I remember my early teen years when I, in my mid-teens when I started drinking and the common thing among us all was you don't let your parents find out what you're at. Mm. You obviously didn't have that. No, there was no, I don't think my mom even cared really. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, that, that, was, that was never a fair look. You know what I mean? Now my mom did used to try and advise me but why would I listen when I've seen her drinking and doing drugs all my life? So why would I care to listen? You know what I mean? Like it's, it was hypocritical kind of to tell me not to do it and you can do it. I know I'm young, but when you're young, you think you know it all. And you think, you you think you know best, you know? So your first uh, experience of cocaine was when you were 16. Mm. How quickly did it progress to being something that you considered a problem? Because I understand what you're saying when you did it first, you just thought, well, I'm just doing what everyone does. Mm. When did you get to a stage where you thought, this is an issue? I was I was nearly oblivious to my last day down. Really? Like, no, I was, I, I, I was very aware the last, I would say the, my last year of doing it. So I would have got sober in June 2020 and the for the let's say June 2019 to June 2020 I would have used daily so I would have did cocaine every single day bar none it would have been the first time in my mind when I wake up before I kick a leg out of the duvet before I go into the shower before I brush my teeth would be to open the locker and do a sniff that would have been my very first thing of the day and then I'm on it for the day whether I'm drinking or whether I'm not but before that, I would have been really oblivious, like, because every weekend everybody did it anyways. So that was the common thing. We'd all go to the pub, we'd all do drugs, we'd all drink, we'd all have a good night. We'd probably stay out for two or three days and then we'd be hanging together for a couple of days and we wouldn't do it. And then we'd go back out on it. And it was just kind of like every weekend we'd go on a three-day bender. And then for the other few days we'd recover, be depressed. And then so we'd feel better by Thursday and Friday we're back on it. And then... That quickly progressed to like, I'm just going to try one on a Monday and mm. just now drinking me. I'm just going to do one and see what it feels like because I'm not, I never did a sober, I never did it without drinking me. So let me just try it and boom, you do it and you're like, oh, this feels mad and I enjoyed it. So then you're gradually progressing to then wanting to do that every day. And it's a scary one, see, especially, especially coke, like, because... A lot, a lot of my friends, obviously, are still using now and they don't see the problem. And I try, I, I'm not a preacher or anything like that. People are going to do what they're going to do. And I know a lot of people have their own shit going on. So, look, I can't tell you, don't do that. It's bad for you, you know. So, But I do try and advise them. Like, take it easy on it because you, you'll end up in a bad place, you know. And I know a lot of them don't believe it. They, they don't really understand because they would they would be the way I was back then, like oblivious. I don't have a problem. I can put it down. Like I can use Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and put it down Monday to Thursday. So if I'm not using them days, well then I don't have a problem. Mm. But then try not to with Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's when that's when you start seeing the problem. I try and have a drink without ha- without using. Mm. That's when you start seeing a problem. Were you like a lot of people get to the point where they're trying to hide the extent of their addiction? Were you openly doing it on a daily basis or were you starting to box clever about where and when you did it? 
No, I boxed clever. Okay. I didn't want people. Although, like, a, a lot of people could hear me, but mainly me brothers, they would have been, like, any time they would have seen me for, like, the last few months of using, they would have been like, you're in a bad way. What's going on with you? And I would have been like, oh, grand, what are you talking about, Marley? You know? And they, but they would know, you know? So the people closest to me would know. I think my ma knew. Um, see, my ma is sober probably 12 years now. So... She would have, she would have been able to see the signs pretty clearly, like you know what I mean. So I'd say she knew, but she wouldn't pull me and say it to me like my brothers would. They would have been honest with me, but I would have never just been openly like I'm on it or I'm gonna, you know. I, I just wouldn't have been that open. Where I was trying to box club. I didn't want people to know, you know, I was functioning. It was never an issue of like, like I would still go out, like I, I would try and hide in my room drink and do drugs and whatever and I would be walking as well but then if it came to a point of like going out with the lads they were going out with food or something like that I would go out and I would be at the being on it I just wouldn't get food like you know and I think people would then be they noticing know, yeah they'd be noticing they'd be why are you not getting it I just don't want it but I'd looked rough yeah. when I look back on pictures of myself I'm like oh like I really looked rough you know the decision if that's the right word to use for you to go from being someone who took drugs every day to someone who was going to be live clean and sober mm. how did that come about what was the end for you at that stage I always say there's one there's one memory for me that that just sticks in my mind and we were out my auntie's 80th birthday my great aunt um, she we she had our 80th birthday party in uh, one of the family members' house and all the family got together and we're all just having a little party for that and it's great and we're all up dancing and having the boys and it was just a, it was just a good little night but obviously I was using so it comes to like 2, 3 o'clock and everybody starts leaving and going home and everyone goes to bed and I'll never forget sitting up all night that night which would have been a very common thing like this wasn't uncommon and it wasn't like this mad tragic event that happened but it was for some reason this night got me and it was just I sat up all night still using to the next morning and it's about 9 8, 9, 10 the next morning and all the family are actually coming back over again to have breakfast and have a laugh and and I remember sitting in the sitting room they're all in the kitchen I remember sitting in the sitting room still using and I can hear them all laughing and joking and smell the fry and I just remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I can't keep doing this. Now, obviously, I had that thought daily. I would have been like, I can't keep using. Mm -hmm. like, I'll, like, I'll never forget, like, my nose. So, all around the edge of my nose would have been, like, one big sore. And mm -hmm. in my nose, I couldn't touch it. It was so sensitive and so stingy. Like, there was just sores all over it. And uh, I just, I would have always had that thought. But just for some reason, that morning, still using and her and all the family together. You know, they had the hangover giggles. They'd all be around there laughing. They're all having the breakfast. And I just remember thinking, oh, I can't keep doing this. But I'd been looking for ways. Anyways, look, I'd been, I'd be looking online and I'd see one or two people on Instagram or Facebook and they'd be talking about their journey. And I'd be looking, and oh, I wish I was that. Look, I wish I could get that, but I know I can't. Like this, this is just what my life is meant to be. I was destined for this. So this is just how my life is gonna go. Yeah, that's that. That was just a, always me thought. Like when a thought would come into me head of like, oh, like you're in a bad way. You can't keep doing this. The other thought would come in and go, 
well, this is how your life is meant to be. This was destined for you. How did you stop? It was a sudden one, which which is mental. Um, because of how bad I was at the time, like I just, that was from that morning when, when I ended up stopping that day, I, I obviously carried on through to the day. And then I finally fell asleep and woke up and I just said, I can't keep, I can't keep doing this. And it was a sudden stop. I was reaching out to people who I knew were sober and I was asking them, like, how, how are they coping? What do they do? And people around my age, there would have been people like a couple of years older, but I was like, they can relate because they're young. Cause I'm on, the other thought that would come into my head is I'm in my mid twenties. How can I give her up? You know, like how everybody does drugs at this age, but nobody did it the way I was doing it. And like, I don't, geez, I don't mean that. I mean, everybody around me was drinking and doing drugs, but they all knew when to stop where I never knew when to stop. I always wanted to take it at one step forward. I was always all or nothing. I was staying up for four days straight, going to sleep for a few hours, waking back up and doing it all over again. So like stopping, I, I suddenly stopped. Um, I was I was trying to read up about stuff. I was I listened to Alan Carr's How to Stop Alcohol audio book. I listened to that, and I just remember I got I got two days, three days, a week. I didn't go out that weekend either, and I was like, "All right, I'm a weekend." And then I start doing. You know, a lot of people would say, "Don't do this," but for me, it worked. I'm very like goal oriented like so I was like if I can get to a week let's mm. just see and I got to a week and let's try and get to two weeks and at two weeks I was like if I can get to a month I'll never use again I'll never even want to use I'm done with it then you get to a month and you're like oh my god like I, I can do anything so I stopped drinking I stopped using drugs then I stopped smoking and I stopped gambling as well gambling would have came hand in hand with drinking and drugs anyways so like like I said, I'd be using every day. So I'd be up at five o'clock in the morning on my own, sitting in my room with a bottle in my hand, doing a sniff and I'd be online betting on virtual horses, <laughs> putting a hundred euro on a on a cartoon horse. Going, what the fuck is going on here? Like it's a cartoon horse. You know, and you'd lose your bollocks, you'd lose hundreds sitting there. And so gambling always came hand in hand with it. So you're losing your bollocks gambling. You're losing your bollocks and drinking drugs. And you're walking for nothing. So it was just this endless, vicious cycle. And um, yeah, I, I, I was just very goal-orientated. Like, and this was obviously Jordan lockdown as well. So like, my cousin had set up a boxing club at the time. And uh, everybody was going to that. So I was on that. And then, so I'm training hard. And I'm walking to get better at my boxing. And then I'm going to sea swims with the lads. And I'm getting a coffee. And I'm like, these are real, actually. These are real hoes. Like, no drugs involved. And I remember there was just this, always this guy, like, I'd wake up on a Sunday morning and because, you, you know, when something's so new and fresh, like when you start a new job, it's the best job in the world and after bleeding three months, you hate it. You know, for me, it was like waking up on a Sunday morning and the sun is out and you're like, oh my God, I'm all right. You'd go for a walk with your earphones in. There was just, I don't know what it was. There was just this shift in me. And I was like, this is what, this is life like, you know? And obviously, like I said, like when you get that new job, it's great at the start. Mm. Then the demons come back in. So look, I would have got sober in 2020, June 2020. And everything was great. And then I had a slip in March 2021. You had spoken about being 
sober and you'd shared your story on your podcast at this point, hadn't you? Yeah, so we set the podcast up then in November 2020, me and Calvin. And uh, I just always had a goal to do a podcast. I always had a dream to do a podcast. I don't know what it was. Don't know what it was. Will it be drinking and using? I'd always, you know, that shy talk you do. I'd always be, oh, I'm going to set up a podcast one day. Mm. I'm going to do, I'm going to interview this person. I'm going to do that. And people around me would be like, will you ever shut the fuck up on a bleeding podcast? You're from the flats, like, get another sniff of him, gents. Damn, relax. But I always just had this vision. I, I loved listening to podcasts. So I listened to them all the time. Even when I'd be using, I'd be sitting in the room and, four and five in the morning listening to a bleeding podcast and then me and Calvin met up because he was in the boxing club I was in the boxing club and that's how we kind of met we had the same mutual friends and then one day we had a chat in the car we were sitting in the car and I don't you never sometimes just get mad deep with somebody out of nowhere and you're just talking about your life and shit that happened and he was talking about his life and stuff that happened to him and and we were chatting and our, our mutual friend was sitting in the back of the car and he was like Lads, my God, I have goosebumps. Like, I'd listen to you all day, I swear to God. Terrence, you always want to set up a podcast. Ask him, ask him, do a podcast together. And he just got mad excited about it. It's literally how it started. And then, like, three days later, we met up and we were like, what will we call it? We're like, talking bollocks. Because then no one can say that to us, you know. <laughs> Somebody slags us, we say, well, it's called talking bollocks. You knew what you were listening to, you know. <laughs> it's almost a backup. Um, so we did that. And then we recorded the episode on the phone in Calvin's man's kitchen at eight o'clock in the morning. Kids are gone, getting dropped off and you're sitting there and you're just bleeding, talking into a phone. And we had to stop her and start it about five times because I'm sitting there and he'd start and go, right, this is episode one, talking bollocks. And he'd be saying a few bits and I'd freeze. I'd be like, I don't know what to say. Like, and, mm. oh, you need to bleed and talk. It's a podcast. Stop, start again. And this went on and on. But for some reason, people took to it. And the podcast took off then. It, it ended up going number one. They, in in Spotify, they used to have a thing that was like trending episodes. Mm. And this went number one. And we were like, what the fuck? Like, now we have to do another one. You know, people are texting us. We loved it. So we thought like it was only going to be like people in the area listening. And we'd have a buzz with that. You know what I mean? Um, but we always had a goal for the podcast. Like we, we said to each other, like... It wasn't just, let's sit around and talk bollocks. No, it wasn't. No, we, we had a discussion. We were like, if mm. we're going to continue to do this, what's the aim? And we're both from the north inner city in Dublin. We both come from flats. And we all know it has a bad rep. And there was nobody showing a good light on it. But all the good we had, like if you look in the inner city, you see Kelly Hardington, you see Barry Keoghan, you see these people, yeah. But for us, there was always a bad rep in the media. And we said, the day as well, actually, and this this would have been a, in, another inspiration for us to do it, would have been the day we set it up. We went to boxing that morning. We went for a sea swim and we went for a coffee after. Where, I can't remember where it was, but it was in, it was in a nice area. It was, it was miles out. And uh, we went into a coffee shop. And there was a woman in front of me and Calvin and our friend. And she went up and she ordered her coffee. And she was stood to the side. And we were laughing and joking. And it's almost like she heard our accents. And she turned and looked at me. And I'll never forget it. And she grabbed the handbag and pulled her in close to her and took a step back. Okay. And I remember saying, I didn't say it in front of her because I didn't want her to feel 
in fair or not like that. But I remember when I got out, so there was a glass. Did you see that one? And they were like, what the fuck was that all about? So that woman would have seen us dressed in tracksuits. She would have heard our accents and went bad. Get the handbag close, stand away. For no reason. She doesn't know us. She doesn't know anything about us. But there's this perception. If you wear tracksuits and you speak like me, you're a bad person or you can do bad. And that for me, like that's so disheartening. That kills me even now, because I still feel it now. Like that, that's not gonna go away anytime soon. That's a very common thing, like. And we were like, let's try and change that perception, like. Like you can do good, and you can do big things, like. There was just nobody there to voice for us. So even like, I feel guilty sometimes telling my story on a platform, but then I'm like, I'm speaking for all of us. Like, cause so many people have a story very similar to mine, even worse off, but they, there's nobody to voice it for them. Now I have that voice and I like to spread that message. But then sometimes I'm worried about the pity party and mm. do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but like we need people. Our, like pe- working class people need me and Calvin to be voicing these things to let people see this is actually reality and this does go on, this happens. And we just try and spread a good message. We're not oblivious that there's a lot of bad things that happen and have happened in the inner city over many years. We're not oblivious to it. And we talk about it and we highlight it. But what we try and do is get to the real cause of it. And try and explain to people that like nobody just grows up a bad person. You know, nobody just grows up and does evil things or does bad things to do bad things. You know, a lot of our friends would be locked up, dead, you know, and I would personally say that that's down to circumstances in their life. They didn't just grow up and want to be a criminal or they didn't just want to grow up and go into active addiction and, and struggle with drugs. That's not a choice, like, you know what I mean? You don't make that choice. You grow up and become that person based off of circumstances, in my opinion. Mm. Of course, you have some people who grow up and they're just <laughs> mental, like, regardless of where they're from. But I'm speaking on behalf of the majority who grow up and the circumstances will led them to the route that they took. And what we try and do is highlight so I know the impact that sharing personal stories can have. Mm. Like we're sitting here now chatting away and you're talking openly about your childhood, your relationship to your mother and various different things you've been through. Was that uncomfortable at the start? Yeah. Yeah. Calvin, Calvin would have been big on advising me to do that because I remember being so hesitant to ever do that. Okay. I didn't really want it. Not that I didn't want it, but I was questioning, should I? Like, and I think it was episode two where we sat down and Calvin was like, look, Tardens, you don't understand how many people you'll help, like, by, by speaking about this. Like, if you want to, of course, like, but I think it will help people. I think it'd be big for you to go out and talk about that so openly. And we did. And Calvin got into all of his shit as well. Like, there was a lot of stuff going on, but Calvin, through his childhood and growing up and his mindset and mental health and stuff and we just got in deep and uh, the response to it was mental and it's only now that I've never kind of understood it like I'm still like I think we both me and Calvin have like imposter syndrome like well like what the fuck are we doing different here like of course it was a struggle but then when it goes out because you feel so vulnerable especially the first time what's people going to think what's my friends going to think and what's it's just all this outside noise that you're worried about then it goes out and people go oh my god and it encourages people then to talk I was getting messages off people 
who I would have grown up around who were like really tough, hard men would have never spoke about their feelings around us. And they would text me being like, listen, I've been struggling with my mental health. I've been struggling with my ma, like, and the way you're at the talking about your childhood and stuff like that, that's really at the help of me. And they'd be telling me stuff. And I'm like, this is mad that this is coming from you. Although it's tough. You know, I live here today and I'll be thinking, what the fuck did I say? And oh. Will you? Is that the after yeah. effect? Okay. Yeah, because I think that's natural though. I think most people feel that way. But look, like I said, it's just reality. This is just where it was. You shared your experience of a relapse. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it and I could, you could pick up the emotion or the, there was a lot going on for you. Mm. Um, tell us about that. That would have been, and I'll never forget it, probably the worst I've ever felt. Because you've been on such a high, mm. being sober. I wanted to tell the world that you can do it. Like, I was a, a young man in my mid-twenties. At the end, sober, and I wanted to tell everyone. I'm on the podcast, and I'm telling people, listen, this is the way of life. I am happy, you know? And then circumstances change, things happen in your life. You don't really know how to cope. And my only way of coping with something bad was drinking and using. And when I had that relapse in March 21, I would have been eight or nine months sober. I would have been on the podcast talking about it. And I had to slip. And uh, went out for two or three days on it. The come down from that, after being so public about my sobriety and my recovery, and feeling like I'd let people down. and That must oh. have been hard. Oh. So you're thinking, how do you come back from it? I was like, people's going to call me a hypocrite. Like, I didn't know how people would take it. And I felt like if I was going to go back down the podcast, I would have happened to be open and honest about it. I would have never wanted to hide it. I would have never wanted to just carry on. Like, we just missed a week. One of us was sick and just go on. Knowing that I was at the having a slip. So first of all, what I did was I went out to my auntie's house and I stayed out there for a few days in a dark room. I didn't get up, I didn't wash myself, I didn't eat. I just stayed in bed and was depressed. It, it, was, it was one of the hardest times in my life. No question asked, like, I, I'll never forget it. Um, but then Calvin rang me <laughs> a couple of days after. I had no social media, no, no, everything was gone. I was like, oh, I just need to be gone for a while. And then Calvin rang me and he was like, how are you feeling or whatever? I was just explaining, look, I'm in bleeding bits here. Look, I don't even want to go do the podcast again. I don't want to do that. And he just said to me, like, listen, you fell off the horse. Get back on the horse. Cop on. We're back down the podcast next week. Let's get straight back to it. Don't sit and bleeding, crying it. You know what I mean? Get up. Get your shit together. Get back on the horse and do it all again. Everybody's going to slip. Everybody's going to have... You're going to hit bumps in the road no matter what. And it's just that kind of, like... Everyone else around me could see how bad I was, and they were all putting their arm around me, look, you're all right, and uh, very, like, gentle with me. And he was like, get your fucking shit together. We've shit to do. Like, we've walked to do. Let's go. And it, it just gave me a little pump. I was like, fucking, yeah, let's do it. So we got back on. We did a couple of episodes with guests, and it was going well. And 
I just remember saying to Calvin one day, look, I think we should go into it. Because I was learning more then. The more people I was speaking mm-hmm. to who were in recovery were saying to me, look, relapses happen. Like, they're going to happen. They've they're happened to most they're people. They're so common. Mm, yeah. And mo- most people go through it. So I was thinking, so I'm not just this hypocrite young fella who was like sober and had a slip. I wanted, I wanted to then speak about the relapse. I wanted to then tell people because I waited a few months before we actually got into it. So I was back on the horse and I was like, you can't actually fall and get back on and do it again. You don't have to go back into the cycle that you were in beforehand. Because I remember at the time feeling like I ruined it all. It was eight or nine months and that's gone. So it's all gone. Fuck the world. I'm back. I'm back using. Fuck the podcast. Fuck everything. So that's where the decision came from to then do the relapse episode. I'm not looking to be a fucking hero or a saint. It's not me aim here. But I do want to show young people who are struggling that you actually can live a life without drinking drugs. How are you doing in your recovery now? How are things going? Because I know it's not a linear thing. It's not a thing that just gradually gets better the longer someone's off. No. The drinks and drugs, it's, and of my own experience, it's yeah. waves, it's ups and downs, it's yeah. tricky. Yeah, it doesn't get easier. Yeah. That's that's the reality of it. It definitely doesn't get easier when you're not looking for help. Like, there was a point in time where I thought I was healed. You go through patches where you're like, I'm in a grey space. You stop going to your meetings, you stop doing this. And then boom, you'll just wake up one morning. Mm. You'll be thinking about shit you've done in your past. You'll be thinking about what might happen in the future. Your brain gets a better you. Your head's gone. And the only thing that you always knew what to do was to use, to forget. And that happens. Um, I had another slip, um, which I haven't even spoke about on my podcast yet anyways. But I had a slip in July. That would have been my first time using in two and a half years. And that was a real struggle as well. That was a struggle. I went on it for two days. I went to sleep, I woke up and I said, fuck it, sure it's gone now anyways, why don't, I was going to go to the pub and I was trying to fight them demons to not just fuck everything up. Um, so yeah, what are we, November now, five months ago it would have been. Well done. Yeah, four or five months ago. Look, it happens, doesn't it? I've, I've been in countless meetings where I've sat next to someone who, they're back at their first meeting after a relapse or they're, recalling the memory of a relapse and often part of their story will involve some lesson that they think they've learned or some bit of experience that they're glad that they have and they're keen to share with everyone in the room it's like i I know what i did wrong or i know what i need to do right to protect myself against this happening again what was your experience of that in july do you look back and go i know what happened there yeah I stopped going to my meetings months okay. previous. I think I got overconfident that I was good. Um, I learned a tough lesson, Jordan. I learned that I'll never, because I promised myself, we had two live shows in June, and weeks prior to the live shows, I'd made the decision in my head that I was going to have a drink. Mm-hmm without making the decision, if that makes sense. I'd said in my head, look, if the live show's coming up, as much as I want to slip now and I want the use and I want to drink, I'm gonna get the live shows out of the way and then I'll make that decision. You're already making the decision by doing that. Mm. And then I made the decision to, I, I promised 
I promised myself that I was going to have a point and I was going to try. I was like, again, the demons come in. You're too young to be in recovery. You're too young. Like, you can, you've been two and a half years sober now. Mm-hmm. So what if you go and have a point? Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I went and I had a point. And I promised myself I was going to have three points and I was going to go home and I was going to go to bed. And next week, I was going to try another three points. And, and I wanted to just be a young fellow who can have a three points. The harsh reality of it is I will never, ever in my life be able to have a drink with, without using. It will never, ever happen. I'll, I'll tell you what happened in, in, in July. I went to the pub and I got a point of Guinness. And I remember saying to myself, right, first up for drinking two and a half years. Before the point, come back down to touch the table. I was already thinking about drugs straight away, cocaine. I need it, I need it, I need it, I need it. Fuck you, I had to have a drink now, fuck it. Just do it all, blow it up and see what happens. And before, once up of a point and that decision was made in my head. So I'll never be that young fellow. Did you have to go drinking on your own because so many people knew you were in recovery? Yeah, yeah. So mm. what, what I did was I rang someone close to me and I told them I was going to have a point. And I was like, look, I don't want you to try and talk me over. I'm at the making the decision. I'm doing it regardless. Like, you can sit here and you can chastise me and tell me whatever you want, but I'm going to do this regardless. So do you want to come with me? And even just be there with me, have somebody there so I'm not sitting in the pub on my own. So somebody close came with me. We went to the pub and had a couple of points in me back years and again. And during a couple of points in, my friend went to the toilet and I was on my own at the table down the back of the pub. And a girl come up to me and she said, look, I'm a big fan of the podcast and I'm sorry if I'm intruding, but I can clearly see you're drinking and using. Oh, and wow. I just hope you're okay. And gave me a hug and left, went back up to our table. And the fear set in. And I was like, what the fuck am I at the day? How is it so obvious? And then I'm like, well, I'm fucking standing on a table at fucking five o'clock in the day, shouting and screaming. Like, I'm back on it. You're not obviously saying it, but it's clear that somebody is not sober she just came up wished you well hugged you and left and left wow yeah and when I look back on that moment now I go like I don't know who she is she never texted me she never said nothing she never reached out to me after I thought like she would have reached out like and been like that was me I went up to you I hope all is good or whatever but she didn't and I'm like who the fuck was she (laughs) she was a bleeding saint but I ended up leaving the pub after that because the first sent in and I was like, people can clearly see. And I ended up getting a box of bottles and coming home and using in the comfort of me home. On my own for two days, sitting there. Like, it's... The reality, when I look back on it, the lesson I learned is, like, it's, it means nothing. It does nothing anymore for me. At the moment, at the time, I thought it was great. But, like, it just reminded me of how dark it is. And there's no fun involved. Look, I so badly wanted to drink and use on the lead up to that. And when I drink and used, I was, if I hadn't, while I was doing it, I was just like, what am I even doing this for? Mm-hmm. And I stopped, obviously I, I, I was on it for two days. But on the second day, I still had drink and drugs there. And I remember just going, no. I just put part the bottle down the sink, put the drugs away. And went to bed and just said, it's not by me. It was in this room? They were in now? exact room, yeah. 
mm. this exact room and just stopped off my own back. I'd never done that ever in my whole entire life. Never. I'm going until everything's gone. When everything's gone, then I'll sit and... But I remember stopping myself and just going, no. Speaking from my own experience and from a lot of friends, I think for those of us in recovery, I think the idea of a drink or a drug can be really appealing. But the reality for us is really grim. It's exactly it, Richie. It's exactly it. Like in your head, you think of yeah. all the good times. Yeah. When you deal with your force, when you have your force point, I'll, I'll control it. It'll be different the next time. I've been sober long enough that I know yeah. I'll outsmart my addiction. Yeah, yeah. And you know what the thing is? I really believed it. Mm. I really thought it'd be different. Two and a half. That's what I kept saying. Two and a half years since you did it. You've learned so much. You've spoke to so many people through the podcast. You've learned so much about drinking drugs and the harsh realities of it that you can now do that in a controlled environment because you know, you're educated now. You know a lot. You've been to so many meetings. You know. And then you do it and it's, whoa. So one aspect of that story there reflected an element of your life now, which is that you're a recognisable person. In the circles you move in and the places you go, people point at you and they know who you are. Mm. How do you find that bit? That's 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 not comfortable for everyone. No, I'm I'm not the most comfortable with it. Um, again, I don't mind it, and I never ever have a bad interaction with anybody ever. But sometimes you just think, oh, like it'd be nice to not be recognised, especially in a time like that that mm. I was explaining with the relapse, especially that. But then sometimes it just gets overwhelming. Because we're so open on the podcast, mm. people have a real insight into our lives and they feel like they really know us. And that's actually a very good thing. I like that. But then people want to come up and they share their story with you. Sometimes when you think, oh, this isn't the right place for that. And that can be a real struggle sometimes. And I'm sure you probably experience it as well because you're so open with your story. You have the book and stuff like that. Yeah, I... Like I was at a funeral recently and I was walking up the aisle to, you know, shake hands with the family and someone just leaned in and said, you know, my missus is pregnant, which is great because I have really low sperm count and we're delighted. I was like, congrats, delighted for you. And then I walked out and, and I was standing beside the hearse outside the church and a woman comes up and says, eh, we've got an embryo transfer next week. Like, really nervous but really excited and, you know, I've heard you talk about yours. And it's, it's it's just a, a feature I think and the same as you I think when you're comfortable to talk openly about the reality of your life people can sometimes go well that's a safe space for me to go I'll talk about the reality of my life to them again I don't mind it mm. I'm sure you don't either not at all but sometimes you're like ah we're at a funeral here like, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean I'm crying I'm mid crying <laughs> you're telling me about this you know you last week the podcast had a live show in town it's your eighth one mm-hmm. um, crowd of 2000 mm-hmm. like you're a charismatic valley you're a mm. brilliant communicator when you're on stage is that an area of comfort for you do you get nervous beforehand yeah well, I'm a big overthinker 
and I always think the worst okay. as well. So the build up to a live show is horrible for me, especially the week of a live show. Like last week was horrible. It was on the Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think, and oh fuck, I've been on that stage in front of 2,000 people. But I always say, I can't explain it. It's not just the buzz of a crowd there. When I'm on that stage and the first minute is over, because you you just want to go on the stage and you just want to... Because I'm very open. Sometimes I'm on the stage and I say, look, my nerves are fucking gone. People laugh and think, like, that's... I'm not joking with you, I'm fucking shitting. But then you get that first minute out of the way and you realise, I, I actually think I'm more comfortable on that stage after the first minute than I am just in my daily life. I feel so comfortable up there. I just feel like everybody is... Because I know who our listeners are. I know mm. what crowds we bring. They're just so proud of us. Last year, I've completely, I was telling a story and I just completely went blank. Live on stage. Live on stage, front of 1,100 people in Vicar Street. And just went blank. And I, I just said, look, I don't know where I'm at to be going with that story. Sorry. <laughs> and they all just jumped up, started cheering. That's how real you are. Fucking, we're proud of you. All this. And I'm like, this is mad. They can't fuck her up. Like, So, like, there's just a... F- a feeling of like, I don't know, it's, it's a mad feeling. It's a mad feeling. Because when you grow up, like I said, yeah, I craved attention all my life because I was never getting there. And now we would get to walk in onto a stage in front of 2,000 people and fucking make them laugh and tell stories and have a buzz. Like, it's a weird feeling. But the 12-year-old you would have found this impossible to believe. Oh, 12-year-old me would have found it impossible that I would ever have a job I would have never believed I would ever walk. I used to always say that. I have a youth walker who walks in the youth club, Stagno O'Connor, and we had him as a guest on the podcast actually a couple of months ago. And um, we're, we're good friends today, but he would have been my youth walker growing up in the youth club and he would have seen me from the earliest ages to now. And he always says to me, like, there was one day we sat down and I was in my teen years at this stage, it was probably seven, eight. And he said to me, like, what are you going to do with yourself? And I thought, I'll never walk a day in my life. I'll never walk. And he still, to this day, says that back to me and says, like, that was one of the most frightening moments for him, for me. Because he didn't know where I was going to go in life mm. when I said that. So he could have went anywhere, you know? Like I said earlier on, a lot of my friends are locked up a lot. We've lost friends. And that could have easily been me. Like, I'm one of the lucky ones that I didn't end up on that route. And now I'm hoping to just inspire people and show them that you don't have to go that route. There's another way, mm-hmm. you know, whether it, it doesn't have to be a fucking podcast. No matter who tells you what, teachers have put us down all their life. You know, I've very rarely had good experiences with teachers. I've always been told I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to be nothing. So to go through that and then be able to voice to people and say, you don't have to be a product of your environment. Mm. You don't have to stay there. You can break down the barrier. You can break down the general, generational cycle also. Like my ma was a chronic alcoholic and he was in home, ma and dad would have been the same. And that was just trickling down through the family. And then it gets to me and my brothers. And we're at the break in that cycle now. Well, hopefully touch wood that we stay on a good track. But like my two brothers are in the army and I have a podcast and everything seems to be going well. And, you don't actually have to be what your parents were and you don't have to be stay in that environment. Mm. You can't change, you can't break away and you can't do good things with your life. Mm-hmm. 
thank you for being so open about your story and recovery and your honesty about how that's actually been for you. A lot mm. of people spoof, I think, when it comes to recovery. Mm. You've been really honest and I really appreciate that. Really, really want to wish you well. Thanks, Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, pal. Cheers. Nice one. You're a gem. Oh, nice one. Chat man. Thanks, Aaron. Cheers. Freezing. Oh, it's cold. So we're back in the car. God, that was something else. Yeah, and you know what really struck me as we were sitting there? When Terence began to talk about that second relapse, the one mm. that he's never spoken about publicly before, mm. it's obviously a very unusual situation for you to find yourself in. How, what was that experience like? Do you know, I, th- I think my reaction in the moment when he said it, I suppose it was a mixture of things. I was, on the one hand, concerned for him and sad for him like that that's something that he went through and like you're hopeful it doesn't become something that he continues to go through but I think mainly uh, like the main response I suppose was just like gratitude that mm-hmm. he that he's sitting in front of us speaking about it as something that has happened months ago rather than something that's ongoing that's still that he's still going through and like I I haven't experienced a relapse yet but like I know of loads of people who've had one and they just don't come back from one mm-hmm. they never like to use Terence's phrase they never get back in the horse so him being sober and clear-minded enough to be able to sit there in front of us and reflect on not just what happened, but how and why he thinks it happened, I think that's something to be really appreciative of. But probably the biggest feeling I have sitting here in the car after the chat is, and I don't know if this is the right word, but just how impressed I was by him. It's a very strange thing when you're sitting across from him, and I'm only a couple of years older than, than Terence. it's his bearing and his ability to communicate his experience he's obviously been through a lot for someone of his age of someone of any age mm. it strikes you that you're speaking to someone who's far older than he is it, it does yeah and I really really want to wish him well not just with the podcast they're flying with that um, but on his personal journey and, and particularly with his ongoing recovery really really want to wish him well and before we go, we are very happy to say that today's show was brought to you by now. It's the 29th of November today, so I'm no longer worried about using the F word. The festive season is <laughs> nearly upon us. There, I said it. Um, and that means that there's going to be a load of Premier League football and a load of Champions Cup rugby to watch. And what better way to do it than with a now sports membership? As I said earlier in the show, you'll be able to watch Man City, Spurs, Man U v Chelsea and Liverpool v Man U in the Premier League in the coming weeks. And once the Champions Cup gets underway next week, there'll be both La Rochelle, Leinster and Exeter Chiefs against Munster to watch in very quick succession. And that's at least five excuses you've got <laughs> to give a Now Sports membership a go today. It's really easy, so why not? Can I just say, Richie, that I got a complaint from a friend. Did you? I did. Uh, about you, not me. About me? Uh, saying Man U. Apparently to Man United fans, this is not okay. I don't know why, but he asked me to request that you say Man United, so. Okay. <laughs> despite him I'm never going to use that phrase on this podcast so as I mentioned at the top of the show this is the second last show of the series so if you want to get in touch before our final podcast of the year which is next week you can email us at episode at secondcaptains.com I'd like to finish this one by saying a huge thanks again to Terence for the chat for welcoming us into his home the way he did and for being so candid and open with his story thanks to you Killian thanks so many Richie Episode is a second captain's podcast and is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Thanks a million for listening. We'll chat to you next week.
on is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain. Second captain, first captain, whatever. <laughs>